our King, our Savior, our God has told us we are to see each other as family. True family is family to the end. Real family, it doesn't work this way like, you know, real families don't. Well, I'm going to be part of this family as long as I get more out of it than I put into it. I'll let you be mom and dad so long as I feel like I gain more out of being your son than I have to put in to be your son. We don't even think in those contexts most of the time. Most of us don't. But we do think that way when it comes to the church. Jesus says you've got to stop seeing your relationship that way. The scriptures record for us seven things that Jesus said when he was nailed to the cross. In this sermon series, The Dying Words of Jesus, Pastor Joplin Emerson examines all seven sayings. Listen in to see the heart of Christ unveiled like you've never seen before, by the very words he spoke from the cross. Here is part three, Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother. I want us this morning during the introduction to really stop and just consider Mary the mother of Jesus. As we study Jesus addressing his mother, I want us to think about her. She was a woman who was acquainted with grief. You know, even from the time that it was announced to her that she would give birth, she would conceive God's son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the angel appeared to her and tells her this awesome news. Even in that moment, her heart experienced grief. Look what Luke chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 tell us about that moment. And he came to her. That's the angel that came with the announcement. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She was troubled at the saying, and rightfully so. None of us men could really picture giving birth this morning or being pregnant, but you ladies, could you imagine being told that you would conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit and carry the Messiah in your womb? That would be a troubling thought. It would come with much sorrow in the future. I mean, long term, she would certainly be honored, but consider for a moment everything else that she dealt with. This was a woman certainly associated and acquainted with much grief and sorrow. Even the place that she gave birth. You remember there was no room for her in the inn? And so Jesus was born in this manger, this place that really was meant to be a birthing place of animals. No doubt as she was feeling the baby kick in her womb, as it became real to her that she would be giving birth and raising this Messiah, no doubt she never thought, when I give birth, I want it to be in a manger. It's exactly what it happened. Circumstances outside of her control. The census was given, and all of a sudden in her, you know, in this period of her life where she's about to be due, her and her husband have to make this journey, this difficult journey to Bethlehem, and she gives birth to Jesus in a manger. 
Consider the fact that once Herod had heard that Jesus, this king, had been born, that he issues a decree to kill all of the male children two years old and under. And not only does she have to run for her life, for the life of her child, and ultimately live in a foreign country of Egypt, it's awful to think about the reality that she eventually heard the news the multitudes of other little baby boys who were slaughtered simply because she gave birth to Jesus. Then she had to watch him be abandoned by his disciples, rejected by his own people, hated and despised by the religious leaders of the day. And here she is standing at the cross. Keep in mind the Bible teaches us that Jesus was beaten so badly that you could hardly recognize who he was. That if you just walked up on him and didn't know and hadn't seen what had taken place, you wouldn't even known he was the same person you saw the day before. And there she is, standing with her son, beholding it all. She hasn't shrunk. She hasn't turned her back. She hasn't said, this is too hard for me to bear as a mother. I cannot witness this and left him there alone. She is there. I'm telling you something, brothers and sisters. Mary was an awesome mother. I think sometimes we in the Protestant church are um, cautious not to give her much respect because we've seen the Catholic church elevate her to a place of an idol. But make no mistake about it, this woman was awesome. She wasn't sinless. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But this was a mother that was a faithful mother till the very end. And when Jesus really had nobody else, his disciples had abandoned him. Eventually John shows back up as we see here. But his mother never did abandon him. She was there through the horror of it all. Jesus addresses her. He speaks to her. He honors her. The law has never been repealed, not the moral law. The words of Exodus 20.12, where we are to honor our father and our mother, they are found again in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Honor your father and your mother. And Jesus is doing this in the last minutes of his life. Honor is a lot more than obedience, though it is obedience. But honor is much deeper than just mere obedience. True honor is, comes from a place of affection, a place of caring, a place of respect. And we are not to stop honoring our parents simply because we become adults. Now, I would even argue that the concept of honor is difficult to understand as a child. That most children, when they think about honoring their parents, they think of it primarily in the context of do what they say. Obey, 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 obey. It's not until you get a little bit older that you really begin to understand the concepts of respect, 
perfection honoring a person. And here's Jesus hanging on the cross, moments from breathing his last, honoring his mother. He also addresses John, that is the disciple in John chapter 19. You'll find that one of John's writing uh, techniques through the entire Gospel of John, when he refers to himself, he does so in the third person. He never says it was him. John is speaking here of himself in his writing here, and notice that Jesus addresses John. I think all of us are quick to judge the disciples when we look at the awful, um, you know, traitors that they were the night of his crucifixion. How quick they were to all turn and run. I do think most of us, if not all of us, would have did the same thing under the same circumstances. I think often we still do. Especially circumstances that are unforeseen. Yes, they were told, but they didn't believe what Jesus told them. They just couldn't see how it was possible that this this hero of theirs, this Messiah, this King who had the power to cast out demons, the power to walk on water, they'd watch the guy walk on water. They had watched him speak to nature, and the nature, the storms and the waves, obeyed his voice. They'd seen him heal the sick, give sight to the blind, the hearing to the deaf. They had seen him raise the dead. And so the concept that he was going to be crucified and die the way that he told him he was going to die was something they just couldn't really fathom. And when it happened, it happened the way that temptation and fear comes on a lot of us. It happened like that. And there wasn't a lot of time to stop and think and process. Have you ever been there where you wanted to hit the pause button? So all of the sudden, multitudes of soldiers show up. We're talking a ton of them. They all got swords. The soldiers are there, which are the authorities of Roman government, there to arrest Jesus, and they are there with the religious leaders in tandem coming to arrest Jesus, and all of a sudden, there was no pause button. There was no time to say, hold on, you guys stay there. I'm going to go take a moment to process everything Jesus has told me the last couple years and figure out how I need to respond right now. It came upon them suddenly, no matter how well they were warned. And in a moment of panic, and in a moment of fear, they all abandoned him. Now when Jesus addresses John, this is hours after that. I want you to look at what Caiaphas did to Jesus when Jesus' disciples abandoned him. Look at John chapter 18. I want to read uh, verses 17 through 19. I just want to read these two verses leading up to 19 so you can see that we're dealing with Peter's second denial. The servant girl at the door said to him, or first denial, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? 
He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Could you imagine Caiaphas ridiculing Jesus? Where are your disciples at now? Where are your followers at now, Jesus? Tell me about these people who believe in you. We know that Peter and John stayed as close as they could. Peter's warming himself by the fire. He doesn't want to get too far away, but he also don't want to be close enough to get in trouble for being associated with Jesus. John's close enough to be able to record these things for us, be honest about them for us, but both of them have distanced themselves from Jesus. Imagine what Caiaphas said. Imagine the ridicule. And I want you to notice two things. Jesus says not a word about it in front of Caiaphas. He refuses. Now, there's not much he can say. His disciples have abandoned him. Be kind of odd for him to stand up for him in that moment, but notice he refuses to say a negative word about his disciples in front of the enemy. What a powerful thought of the way Jesus is protecting them even in the midst of their failure. And I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, we can learn a lot from that example concerning the way we speak about our brothers and sisters when they fail. But I want you to think about Jesus addressing John. The first thing he says to John after John's betrayal, behold your mother. He just commissions him right back to work. No quick little speech about, John, I warned you, you're going to have to toughen up. No look into his eyes like, John, how could you do this to me? He simply speaks to him and commissions him to work. Hours afterwards. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, as I've said it over and over again, there is nobody like Jesus. I don't think the Bible could possibly overstate it when it tells us that he is quick to forgive, that he is a God of mercy, that he is a God of grace, that when he forgives us, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness and chooses to remember them no more. And look at how quickly he's willing to do it. Maybe in your hour of trial, you have denied the Lord Jesus. Maybe in your time of testing, you find yourself guilty as the disciples. You need to be encouraged this morning to see just how Jesus deals with those of us when this happens. With all of that said, I want to get to the message this morning, four observations from Jesus's words to his mother and his disciples. Number one, Notice that Jesus' response, excuse me, that spiritual responsibilities never negate our natural responsibilities. Our spiritual obligations don't somehow do away with our natural 
obligations. I mean, here's Jesus literally accomplishing the greatest feat in history, winning the greatest spiritual victory of all of creation, paying for the sins of mankind, and he takes time to handle a natural relationship with his mother. It's very reasonable to believe, even though the Bible doesn't tell us when, doesn't tell us how, it's very reasonable to believe that Joseph was, had passed away by this stage in Jesus' life. It's actually very reasonable to believe it happened well before his ministry ever started. Because while we see his mother there and his brothers and his sisters there, we see the mention of his natural family. We never see the mention of his father. And Jesus is the oldest brother. Here he is about to die as the oldest brother, and his mother is going to be left behind. And we see him caring for her. We see him honoring her. And here's the lesson. There is no duty. I say this cautiously and I'm, uh, very carefully. There is no duty, even if it's dying on the cross for the sins of mankind, that eliminates our responsibility, that eliminated his responsibility to honor those natural relationships, those God-given relationships that God's called us to honor. You know, sometimes as Christians, we are quick to kind of make two different categories of our life and our relationships. We've got the natural ones and the spiritual ones. And what we see is this is just not the right way to look at life. That every relationship we have, we need to see through the lens of our spiritual responsibilities. I remember when I was first saved, and I knew I was called to ministry, I knew I was called to preach, and... Man, there was a couple years at work where I just hated going to work. I felt like I was wasting, you know, eight to ten hours of my day doing non-spiritual things, and that it would be so much better if I could eliminate that out of my life and come over here instead and spend eight hours a day doing spiritual things. It was as if I couldn't see the spiritual cause of spending eight to ten hours a day around sinners who needed Jesus. But man, if I could get away from all of that and do something spiritual, I didn't even know what I was going to do. Like, what do you do? Are you going to study the Bible for four hours straight and then pray for four hours, like every day, five days a week? What? I didn't even know. But for me, I had this false understanding of, what was natural and my normal routines of life somehow having no spiritual content. And so it was like I wanted to get away from those things to do something for God. You know what we learn is that really all of these things are connected. And I'll tell you this, it absolutely, totally changed my, my attitude towards work when I began to recognize that this is part of my spiritual responsibilities. I quit seeing it as simply going to work hoping that it would get over so that I could go and do spiritual stuff. And I began seeing it as a mission field. I began showing up with, you know, a sincere question and asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do today? God, help me to be sensitive to today, the people that I'm working with that um, need a word of encouragement. 
Give me some discernment. Who's hurting? Who needs encouraged? Who needs, you know? And I begin to see work as a mission field instead of as this non-spiritual place with non-spiritual relationships that I just wanted to get away from. You know, I think that many of you might be able to resonate that at times in your life you have felt a similar attitude towards your, what we might call secular relationships. But I'm going to tell you that the same thing happens in our actual family relationships. Sometimes just the familiarity of a, of a family relationship, someone you spent your whole life with, someone you spend every day with, you know, a wife and husband, your kids, sometimes because we go through life together and we do so much natural things together, we got to plan the bills. We got to talk about where we're going to, how we're going to handle a certain situation. We got to, you know, who's going to mow the yard? And who's going to do this? And who's going? To, and we constantly are talking natural things that at times we begin to see those relationships as not as important as our spiritual ones. And when we begin to do this, brothers and sisters, we've got it all wrong. There's not a relationship more important than the relationship between husband and wife. If you're married. You need to know, other than your direct relationship with God, there's not a single relationship you have that is more important to God, and you need to see that relationship, your marriage relationship, as a spiritual obligation. It's not just natural. It's a spiritual obligation. And then next, we've got the, the, the parent-to-child relationship. You know, sometimes, it's sad to say, but sometimes... Christians can be nicer and more spiritual and more loving and more gracious and more compassionate to everybody but their own family. Jesus is showing us right here, brothers and sisters, that when that's us, we've got it wrong. And we need to repent and get back to loving our families, loving our husband or our wife, our children, maybe it's reverse, loving your parents. We have got to get back to treating these natural relationships with the same sense of importance that we, we do those that we consider spiritual. Number two this morning. Notice that the mother of Jesus is like all of us, a person in need. Jesus is addressing one of her needs here. And while I opened up with the truth that she was this great mother and that she is to be honored, I want to now balance that with the truth that she was still a person like all of us who was in need of a Savior. In all four Gospels, here the last time that Jesus ever addresses his mother, he addresses her as woman. I believe that it was to guard against the idolatrous worship of her as the mother of God, the queen of heaven. She is not the queen of heaven. The Bible teaches no such thing. The Mary of Scripture 
is very different from the Mary of superstition. She was a woman in need, just like us. Look what she says in uh, Luke chapter 1. This is Mary speaking. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Yes, Mary recognized she too needed a Savior. You know who doesn't need a Savior? Sinless people. That's who. Mary was not sinless. She was a descendant of Adam. She was a sinner by nature, and she was a sinner by practice. She was not perfect. She was not sinless. She was a person in need just like you and I. The Bible says that she was blessed among women, not above them. And here in the final moments of Jesus' life, we see him dealing with a mother in need. Number three this morning, notice God is reaching out to us individually. He's going to address Mary. He's going to address John. One of the things about this study that has truly um, like invigorated my soul is how clear that even in the last minutes of Jesus' life, he's dealing with individuals. I mean, the crowds are there. He never addresses the crowd once, ever. But he addresses the thief on the cross. He addresses his mother. He addresses John. Jesus never, never failed to take time to deal with the one. When I look at where Jesus is at, have you ever just not felt good and wanted to be alone? I know I have. Sometimes it's physical sickness. Sometimes it's just mental exhaustion. Have you ever felt like you just wanted to be alone? You don't want to help anybody. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to dig in and focus and really help somebody. It's just like, go somewhere else, talk to somebody else. I need my space. Leave me alone. You ever been there? I have. I've been there. I don't like being there, but I've been there. I'm just telling you the truth. And I could never imagine being in a situation like Jesus is right here. And we see him dealing with the thief on the cross. We see him dealing with his mother and her need. We see him speaking to John and commissioning John to work. I think that we as the church have got to see the way that Jesus did ministry and it will radically change the way we see how we should do ministry. You know, most of the major things that Jesus did were either in small groups, one-on-one conversations. He might have taught to the masses and most of the masses didn't understand. They had ears, but they didn't hear. And a small group would come to him afterwards and say, Jesus, what did you mean by that? And then Jesus would sit down and he'd explain it to him. And it's, it's even in that context when we read the scriptures that we learn the most. 
You look at the way that he treated individuals and it was like, you know, we, read, we, we, we simply read through a passage like the multitudes came and he healed them all. But then we look at stories like John chapter 9 where Jesus heals the man blind from birth and it sticks with us. We think about the woman with the issue of blood who pushed through that crowd. Jesus wasn't impressed with the crowds, never. Even when the crowds came, what did he say early on in his ministry? That he wasn't impressed by them. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. He knew the real reason they were there. Most of them ulterior motives. Most of them out of curiosity. But when that woman pushed through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, everything stops. Who touched me? Jesus takes the time to turn and talk to the one. Blind Bartimaeus. All of us know his name. Because he yelled out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there again in the crowd, Jesus' ear, Jesus' eyes, Jesus' heart, they all turn to the one individual who truly wanted him. Jesus coming to the woman at the well. Brothers and sisters, this could go on all morning. Here's the point. Our example did most of the work that he did, either one-on-one or in small groups. We've been duped into believing that somehow the key to, to building the kingdom is if we can just reach the masses all together. Like, let's get a million people all to watch one message. Jesus did not neglect the opportunity to preach to the masses because there are always a few who will respond. But the majority of significant, long-term, impacting ministry happens one-on-one. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. That will change the way you and I see kingdom building. All of us have a role to play. That's awesome, isn't it? How boring is it, the idea that if we just need to get millions so that one great preacher can preach to them? That's boring. But when we recognize that all of us have a role in sharing the gospel, spreading the message of Christ, showing the love of Jesus, talking to people one-on-one, truly reaching people where they're at, all of a sudden we've all got a significant, huge role in this thing to play where it is our job to get out of this place, go into the mission field, go to work tomorrow, go wherever you go, and look for opportunities, pray and ask God for some one-on-one opportunities to impact people's lives. We see God reaching out to us individually. Finally, this morning, we see that it is the will of God that we care for one another. Note the tenderness of the words Jesus uses here with Mary, his mother, and John, his disciple. The relationship that he calls them to. Your son Your mother. Brothers and sisters, the type of relationship that God sees us in is a true 
family relationship. And I want to take some time to like dig into this this morning. Because when we use these terms in Christianity, a lot of times they just kind of... How many times you ever heard the family of God? How many times you ever heard, you know, the church is a family? How many times have you heard these words? Hey, brother, hey, sister. They can become just words. Like when you think about your true brothers, when you think about your true sisters, I mean, I'm talking blood relatives, you have a different meaning for that word than you do when you just talk to any average person in the church. Hey, brother, how you doing? It's just like a, a word that is almost empty of its true meaning. But we see when Jesus is commissioning his disciple and, and speaking to his mother here at the very last, he uses this term of intimate family relationship for them. I want to drill on this and I want to emphasize it this morning because Jesus cared enough while he's hanging on the cross to use this as one of his final statements. How important could that possibly be? When I study the things that we're looking at, there are a few that really stick out to me, right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's, that seems monumental. To the thief on the cross, the fact that immediately he was forgiven, going to be in paradise with Jesus. Some of the statements we're going to look at in the weeks to come, it is finished. My God, why have you forsaken me? There are two statements that kind of stick out, though, that are like, um, why did he say that? Of all the things he could say, and for me, this was one of them. The other being, I thirst. And as we study him, we will see there is a reason Jesus said everything he said. He is the Word made flesh. And you can believe He chose His words carefully. And so, for Jesus to look at His, his mother, His disciple, two of His most intimate followers, and now tell them, from this moment forward, you shall see each other as blood relatives, as family. We see this incredible importance that God sees us as family. And you know what that means? We got responsibilities to each other, brothers and sisters. We have responsibilities to each other. You and I have been bombarded for many years with a culture that encourages emptiness in our relationships. It encourages selfishness. Like, you know, if you can get more out of it than you put in, then great. But when you start having to put more into it than you get out of it, then cut loose and run. And it's all about you, 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 you. What do you get out of it? What do you get out of it? What do you get out of it? It's, it's crept into the way that we even think about church. Honestly, many of you, if you're just honest with yourself, when you've thought about trying to find a church or a church home, maybe when you were even thinking about this one, a lot of the questions that we ask are, what can I get out of it? You're thinking about what you want, what appeals to you. 
we've sort of been trained to live our lives with this very selfish mindset where we're not so much truly serving others. Somehow we disassociate our service to God and our commitment to Him. We disassociate it from our service to others and our commitment to others. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the Bible knows nothing of it. Our King, our Savior, our God has told us we are to see each other as family. True family is family to the end. Real family, it doesn't work this way. Like, you know, real families don't. Like, well, I'm going to be part of this family as long as I get more out of it than I put into it. I'll let you be mom and dad so long as I feel like I gain more out of being your son than I have to put in to be your son. We don't even think in those contexts most of the time. Most of us don't. But we do think that way when it comes to the church. Jesus says, you've got to stop seeing your relationship that way. You've got to see it as something that's much more deep and much more intimate. And I'm telling you, accountability comes along with that. There's an accountability that comes because I love you and I have a responsibility to treat you just like I love you. I have a responsibility to hold you accountable the same way I would my own kids, my own wife, my own brothers, my own, you know, the people in my life. I have a responsibility to hold you accountable for who you say you are, a son and a daughter of God. We represent our Heavenly Father. The world is watching. They need to see that we are living for Him. I really believe that right now, in this really weird season we're in, 2020, I mean, I really believe the church needs each other as much as we ever have. I believe that. We've always needed each other. The truths that I'm sharing aren't like all of a sudden important now. They've always been important. I'm just telling you right now in this exact season, if there's ever a time we, we needed it most, it is now. We need each other. People are hurting. People are discouraged. People are tired. People are exhausted. Many are depressed. Let me ask you, if you had a close relationship with your mother, you used to see her every week, and all of a sudden you just hadn't seen her for three months, would you call her and ask her how she's doing? Have you done that for anybody else in this church? If not, I'm going to tell you the reason why not. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because you're selfish and you don't love people. But it's because you don't really see people here in your church family like real family yet. You just don't. And what I'm telling you this morning is God does. He sees it that way. Now here's the encouraging thing I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team to get in place today. You know, when we do this right, it's one of the most beautiful witnesses to the world that we could ever give. Look what Jesus said about this type of love we should have for one another, the effect that it would have on the world in John 13 and verse 35. 
by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Hey, if we want to win the world, then what we need to do first is win each other. If we want to show the world the love of God, then the world needs to see it in the way we love each other. I'm going to close with a uh, testimony of how this worked in my life. Most of you know that um, I wasn't born and raised in a Christian setting. I didn't go to church all my life. Lived a pretty wicked life up until I was about 20 years old and started trying to figure out if God was real, really started going to church just kind of as a skeptic. And I will never forget walking into the West Side Free Will Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. Now, granted, I had not been to a lot of churches. Honestly, I had probably been to like 10 different churches in my entire life, and most of those churches I'd either been to once or twice. But I'll never forget walking into that church and being absolutely weirded out at how friendly everybody was with each other. I mean, I'd been to churches before. People didn't talk with each other much. You got in, you got to your seat, you sat with your little group, and at 12 o'clock when the preacher said amen, you were gone. You were out of there in 10 minutes. Now, I'll never forget, I walked into this church, and it was like, they don't want to leave. And it wasn't just like a happy group of people up over here in the happy section. It was everywhere. And as a lost sinner, I knew that I knew that I knew these people really like each other. This is not a show. You couldn't fake it. I wasn't saved, but I wasn't stupid either. There's a certain degree of love and true connectedness you can't fake. These people loved each other. And I'm going to tell you this skeptic boy's first instinct was, I wonder if this is a cult. Because I'd never seen anybody that committed to each other before. I'd been to church. It wasn't like this. Something about it drew me. Something about it felt so right. And it was like, deep in my heart, I couldn't have put it into these words. Deep in my heart, I looked at him and it was like, I knew these are the disciples of God. That's who this is. And I knew I wasn't part of them. I knew it. I knew I couldn't just become that by signing my name on a line. It was like there was something different, something supernatural that made these people different than me. And I longed for it. No wonder it was so important to Jesus. In all of his pain and suffering to get those final words out, you are family. Behold your son. Behold your mother. Treat each other this way. Live this way. Oh, that the church would again love each other.
like family. That we would be committed to one another like family.